I just made a decision. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to apply myself to teaching Dennis what I know about the doctor-patient relationship. I'm going to learn as much as I can. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Dental Head Start podcast. My name is Erica Huynh, and for this month's feature, we are joined by our very first international speaker, all the way from South Carolina, Dr. Paul Homily. Now, earlier this year, I was talking to one of my mentors, and he introduced me to a book he said changed his life, the way that he perceived dentistry and his relationship with his patients. And so naturally, I wanted to see what all the fuss was about, and I bought myself a copy. Now, for someone who doesn't read books all that often, I have to say, I think I finished the book in about a week. Now, the title of the book is, Isn't It Wonderful When Patients Say Yes?, written by none other than Dr. Paul Homily. And so when I had the opportunity to have a chat with Dr. Homily, needless to say, I was very, very excited. Now, the book introduces so many different concepts, but one I found really fascinating and that stuck with me, and we talk about it in this episode, is an idea Dr. Homily coined as the spectrum of appeal. And it introduces the concept of blue and red spectrum language, whereby blue language is everything we get taught at dental school. It's our scientific terminology. It's our investigations and diagnoses, our logic and our rationale. And oftentimes as dentists, this is what we naturally gravitate to. But as humans, what makes us unique is our ability to connect with one another, and that's built upon red spectrum language. It's our emotions, our feelings, our ability to inspire one another and the stories we share. And so as dentists, where our primary goal is to help those in need, we need to remember that our patients aren't just the mouthful of teeth with holes that we need to problem solve and fix, but rather our patients are people. They're human beings with feelings and emotions, with stories to tell and needs and priorities and goals and ambitions that we owe it to them to listen to. In this episode, we get to hear Dr. Homley's unique journey in dentistry, how he was practicing for 20 years and running his own successful practice until an incident really changed the trajectory of his career, and how for the last 20 odd years, he's been traveling the world, speaking to and inspiring young dentists. He holds the highest end designation in professional speaking, a title that fewer than 15% of professional speakers hold, and he is the first dentist worldwide to earn this title. He is also the keynote speaker for the Dental Summit Conference being held next year, 2023, September 1st and 2nd. And so if you haven't got a spot already, early bird tickets are still available. This was a really exciting episode for me to record and I'm excited to share it with all of you. But before we get stuck into the episode, I want to hand it over to Hayden's Corner to give us an update on this month's giving project. She's making waves in both the dental community and the whole of Australia. Young South Australian of the Year Special Needs Dentist Dr Trudy Lin has been an undeniable force in the advocacy of special needs dentistry. According to one of her many speeches, there are only 20 special needs dentists in the country despite one in five Australians living with a disability. She also points out that due to the increasing ageing population, Australia is about to undertake a silent healthcare crisis. Inspired by Dr. Trudy Lynn's message, Dental Head Start, as part of our giving project, will be donating $1,000 to Dr. Trudy Lynn's charity listed on her website, Citizen Advocacy South Australia. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit her website at trudylynnsmile.net. And now it's time to get back to Erica and Dr. Paul Homily. Dr. Paul Homily, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Ah, yes. Thanks for having me, Erica. This should be fun. 
I am so excited because this is a very special moment, Dr. Homily, because you are our very first international speaker that we are having on the podcast. But, you know, I've heard lots about you and that you are the king of communication and case acceptance. So I thought when the opportunity came up, we couldn't pass up having you on the show. Well, good. Well, well, thanks for having me. This this will be fun. And, uh, you know, I was in Australia. I was invited to do the two-day workshop for the Australian Academy of Implant Dentistry. I did that over 25 years ago. And it was in Sydney. We had a a big time. And uh, my hosts were excellent. They gave me a tour of the area. I'm looking forward to coming back. I'll I'll be coming back to your area this spring, coming up this spring. I'll be there doing the Young Dentist program, and then I'll be doing two days of my speaker's workshop called Just Because You're an Expert Doesn't Make You Interesting. It will be a full schedule. Oh, that sounds so good. And I think Australia is very excited to have you back, Dr. Homily. And that actually leads quite well into the first question I was going to ask you is that you've traveled a lot and throughout the world to educate and to speak to different people. Do you have a favorite place? that you've been? And why was that special to you? You know, my favorite place to speak is Chicago. Chicago is my hometown, Erica. I was I was born in Chicagoland. I went to University of Illinois, a College of Dentistry. I'm, I'm a Midwesterner. I am a Midwesterner. And, you know, the interesting thing is about Chicago, when I lived in Chicago and went to dental school, you know, I was a dental student. I was you know, I had a young wife, two young children. I didn't have any money. I just worked my tail off. And frankly, I, I didn't get to enjoy Chicago, not not as the city. I enjoyed it as a student, but not as a city. And, and once I graduated and became a dentist and I, and I started doing workshops around the world, when I get back invited to Chicago, we go downtown, we stay in nice hotels. I love Chicago people. The food is great. The energy is, the weather's awful during the wintertime, but between Labor Day and Memorial Day, it's wonderful. So if I had to pick a favorite city, it would be Chicago, Illinois. Oh, that's wonderful. And I'm sure, you know, going back years later, you have that sense of nostalgia, but things have changed, but you're clearly seeing it from a different perspective, aren't you? (laughs) Absolutely, yes. So Dr. Hummel, you've been in the industry for many, many years. You were saying like, you know, you studied in Chicago, you were practicing dentistry for, is it about, was it about 20, 20 odd years? And then you were also educating for another 20 years on top of that? That's right. That's right. I graduated dental school in 1975. And then I went right into the United States Navy and I practiced dentistry, Erica, in the United States Navy. That was one of the best decisions I ever made. I was stationed with the Marine Corps at Marine Corps Station Cherry Point in Cherry Point, North Carolina, and had terrific experience there. They put me in the the Department of Oral Surgery. I was a general dentist, but they needed somebody in oral surgery. So I was mentored for two years by Dr. Mel Davis, who was our base oral surgeon. So I took out hundreds, if not thousands of wisdom teeth, assisted in the operating room, worked with Mel. So when I came out of the Navy, I had a very strong dental alveolar surgical background, enrolled in the Pankey Institute, the Dawson Academy as a young dentist. Because I had a strong surgical background and and really got up to speed pretty quick as far as occlusion and rehabilitative dentistry, I placed my first dental implant. You ready for this? In 1978. In 1978. Yes. and My goodness. (laughs) Yeah. And and it took me about uh, two years to build a practice that was exclusive to implant and reconstructive dentistry. I moved my practice 
to Charlotte, North Carolina. It was about 70 miles. Charlotte's the largest city in North Carolina. And I built a brand new building and built a dental laboratory. I love practice. I practiced for 20 years. And at the end of 20 years, my right eye, I had a disability with my right eye. The muscle ruptured in my right eye. I, I had a severely crossed eye, Erica. I really couldn't, I really couldn't practice anymore. I had a couple surgeries. And because of the convergence of working close, the eye surgeon suggested that, um, <laughs> I remember the eye surgeon telling me I need plan B in my career. And I had a big practice and, and a couple of kids in college and all of that. And so in 1995, 20 years in practice, 20 years in practice, Erica, I fully retired from clinical care. And that's when I started my business that I'm in now because I was, you know, we, we were pretty successful. I mean, and not only were we successful, but you see, I loved what I was doing. And I found not every dentist loves what they're doing. And I just found that to be you know, we invest so much in our careers. It's a, it's a shame that we don't love it more. So I started what's called homily communications, and uh, that's the role I'm in now. And I've, I've been loving it. What a story. I, I really want to break this down a little bit because that's such a fascinating story. But it sounds like right from the get-go, you were in love with dentistry, you know, like, you know, doing things straight away, um, placing your first implant so early on, starting your practice. Did you always love dentistry? Like, did you know you were in the right field every step of the way? Was it always the goal when you were a child or how did you, how did that develop? <laughs> and I see you, you're shaking your head. <laughs> There's a I, story behind this, isn't you, there? <laughs> you know, when I was an undergrad, when I was an undergraduate, I had no idea I'd be a dentist. I didn't love dentistry. I didn't even like going to the dentist, yeah. to tell you the truth. <laughs> and But yeah. understand, I grew up um, lower middle class. Um, my, my dad had an eighth grade education and he was a small time carpenter. My mom was a waitress at Mario's Hamburgers. We had two, we, I, I, there was four kids in our family and we never had any money. And, and it isn't that we were poor, but we were close to being that. When I went to college, I paid for all of my own college. I worked full time and went to college at the same time. I applied to dental school. I, I looked, I said, you know what? Every dentist I knew was driving a nice car and work with a lot of pretty girls. I said, that's for me. And, yeah. and, and so <laughs> I applied to dental school. I got accepted to dental school. All of a sudden, I'm a dentist. I'm a dentist. I'm going, wow, what an opportunity. And so I learned to love it. I, I realized that, and, and I learned this very early in my career, Erica, that dentistry is, is it's much about the people as, as it is about the teeth. And some dentists, they really get into the tooth side of it. And, and I did too, don't get me wrong. But there's a whole people side of it that that I seem to have a knack for. So consequently, my my practice grew pretty quickly, and I made a lot of money. Oh, and I had a nice car, and and, and my kids and all the pretty girls. And <laughs> I worked I worked with pretty girls. I did so. <laughs> So I, I learned to love it. It never was, you know, my dad wasn't a dentist. I, I have no family history of any dentist in my family. I was kind of the first one to kind of break out of that lower middle, that lower income status with my family. And, um, and I'm very grateful for that, to tell you the truth. And over the years, over the years, dentistry has been terrific for me. And 
when I left clinical practice, I left clinical practice over 20 years ago, Erica, and now I have the I have the privilege of working with young dentists. I, I just got off the phone 15 minutes ago, right before this, a, a young dentist who is building multiple practices in the Arizona area. I live in Arizona right now. And she and her husband, her husband's an attorney, and they already own two practices. They're buying more, and they're inviting me in to help lead their new patient experience and treatment acceptance process, and they want to build an enterprise. What a privilege. What a privilege it is to work with folks like that. So I'm I'm very grateful. And believe me, if somebody would have told me 50 years ago, when I was 16 years old, they would have said, you're going to be a dentist. I said, there's no way I'm going to be a dentist. There's no way. <laughs> Well, it's interesting how life comes together like that and things clearly fell into place and you are where you are today. Like Dr. Homely, you were saying that you you were passionate, you grew your practice to be something that you were really proud of. You were in love with what you did. Tell me a little bit more about this moment where you found out about your eye and that you needed a plan B. I'm sure that was a really emotional moment in your life where it kind of threw a spanner in the works. What were the emotions that you felt during that time and what gave you that drive to then be like, I'm going to create? An institute where? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you. I'll tell you the emotion. It's called terror. It's called yeah. terror. Is what it is. Yeah. I'm. Uh, yeah. I'm. Uh, I was about nineteen, almost twenty years in the practice. I had a a forty four hundred square foot facility. I had full time associates. I had about fourteen or fifteen different team members. I, I owned and uh, led a commercial dental laboratory. I was teaching part-time at the Mish International um, Implant Institute. I was traveling worldwide speaking. Every direction was up for me, Erica. I had my foot in the gas. And I woke up one morning and this right eye was so severely crossed to the midline, you couldn't even see my pupil. I immediately went to the eye doctor, the lateral rectus muscle right here that causes the eye to go like that ruptured, the eye caved in. And the, the surgeon looked at me. This is all the same day now. The surgeon looked at me and said, we, we can resect it. That is, they'll operate, refix the muscle, bring the eye back to center. He said, but because dentistry requires such convergence, when you're looking at stuff closely, he said, the eye will cross again and we can't fix it a second time. And he looked at me and he said, you need plan B. You, you need to do something besides practice in dentistry. That was terror. That was terror because I had a couple houses and nice cars and kids in school. And I made a lot of money, but I had a lot of debt too. And and so I needed to kind of circle the wagons. You know what I'm saying? I had to kind of think, okay, I need to sell the practice, shut things down and move on. And um, I was scared to tell you the truth. I, I was scared. I, I had gotten accustomed to being affluent. And all of a sudden, I found myself back in that old lower middle class mentality where where lack of abundance creates fear, right? And, you know, for for dentists who've grown up in affluent uh, households, their parents were dentists or doctors or something like that, when, when, when dentists don't have an austere background, it's, it's hard for them to understand that there's a certain amount of panic. There's a certain amount of fear that goes with not being sure about your future. I had the eye surgeries. I, I, it took me about a year to sell the practice, sell the facility, sell the lab, sell the equipment and all that. 
And in that period of time, I said, okay, I've got to eat. <laughs> you know, I, I was successful, but, you know, I had funded my retirement plan, but, but I was 40 years old. I was 40 years old when that happened. And so I just made a decision. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to apply myself to teaching dentists what I know about the doctor-patient relationship. I'm going to learn as much as I can. I want to be, because I knew, I knew. You see, you see before my injury, I, I spent quite a bit of time lecturing on implant uh, surgery and prosthetics. Um, I lectured, again, all over the country, a little bit in Europe and in Australia. I was saying that earlier. And I was pretty good in front of an audience. And, and people liked me. And I, um, it wasn't difficult for me to get speaking engagements. And I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really learn to be a great speaker. Just not somebody that shows slides, but somebody that can get up in front of an audience and get the audience to feel good about who they are, get people to feel my energy, get people to feel, uh, to, to think, to think um, bigger thoughts. And so I joined the National Speakers Association, the National Storytellers Association, and, and ultimately um, went through their uh, accreditation process. And I earned the what's called the Certified Speaking Professional designation. I was the first dentist in the world to earn that designation. And so... That is so impressive. Yeah. And so now I, uh, I, I have the clinical background in dentistry and I've been in the trenches. Uh, you know, a, a dentist can't, there's very few questions they can ask me that I don't know an answer to or, or have some insight into. I don't, I don't know all the, the new clinical bonding materials and all of that stuff. No, that, not the clinical aspect, but the behavioral and practice management aspects. I'm pretty much up to speed on just about what's going on. That's my story. That's fascinating. Actually, Dr. Homily, the reason that I came to know of you was that one of my mentors, uh, he said to me, he was telling me his story and about, you know, as a new grad, what he was going through and then him just hitting a wall where he's like, I'm just not seeing the results that I'm after. And he said that he picked up your book, um, Isn't It Wonderful When Patients Say Yes? And he picked it up and he said he read it all in one night. He could not put it down. And he said, Erica, if there's one thing I would recommend you do whilst you're still a student and before you graduate, he said, go buy yourself a book. <laughs> I've got it right here for you. And he says, go read it and see what you make of it. And honestly, I bought it and I also could not put it down. But I will tell you honestly, Dr. Homily, is that when I first heard the title of like, you know, isn't it wonderful when patients say yes or making it easy for patients to say yes, part of me does carry this little bit of skepticism. Or it's a, it's the same with a lot of other books as well, like, you know, the classics of, oh, how to win friends and influence people, think and grow rich. I'm like, is it that easy? And I, is one book going to change my attitude, right? And I came in with a bit of skepticism where I was worried it was just going to teach me how to be a cold-blooded salesperson. But having read it, uh, having read it, I was so mind blown because I realized that what you taught, it was like you said, it wasn't focusing on the clinical aspects of it. It was all about patient relationships. And I feel like if anything, having read it, it was a book about human connection, about influence, inspiring people, empathizing, and case acceptance was the byproduct. What do you think of this? Uh, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. You know, there are too many speakers who will talk about treatment acceptance and they they come at it from a sales point of view. 
And when I say a sales point of view, what I mean by that is they'll learn to, the dentist will quote, let's say $1,000 for a crown. And the patient says, oh boy, that's awfully expensive. And and the sales approach would, would take, well, how to overcome patients' objections. Overcoming objections is a big salesy thing, right? And so the the consultants who teach a sales technique will say, well, well, Mr. Patient, don't think about it as an expense. Think about it as an investment. And is there any reason why you wouldn't want to go ahead and make that investment today? Well, it's still a lot of money. Well, you know, if you don't do it now, it's only going to be more costly in the future. And if you're interested in saving money, wouldn't it make sense for you to do it now? And it's all that pushy, pushy sales stuff. I hate all of that. I hate all of that. And so my work is about my work is about what I call standard of caring, Erica. You know, standard of care. Standard of care is you know good diagnosis, good treatment plan, good treatment, good postoperative care, good prescriptions. You know, good recall. Standard of care. It, it's it's clinical excellence. My take on things, and and I I love all that. But, but what, what I'm about is what I call standard of caring. Standard of caring is signaling to patients they'll be well cared for. You see, Erica, it's human nature. It's human nature that patients want to be well cared for. But too often, especially in dentistry, and too often that our conversations about standard of care. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to prep the teeth. And here's how we're going to make the temporaries. And here's how we're going to put the implant. All the conversations we have about how to do the dentistry camouflages the standard of caring conversations. The standard of caring conversations are all about understanding people, not educating them, not selling them anything, but rather understanding what is it why do you want your teeth fixed and and how do we need to fit it in your life? Do we do it now? Do we do it later? Do we do it a little bit at a time? Help me understand how can we how can we make this fit for you? You see, there's not there is no fragrance of sales stuff in that at all. What it is, it's it, it's an approach to patient care where I want to give dentists the confidence to be able to recommend complete care with no fear, Erica, with no fear of overwhelming patients or or losing them from sticker shock. And you will overwhelm people and you will lose them from sticker shock if you overeducate them or you use a sales approach to the new patient process and treatment acceptance. No, that's fascinating. You really take it from a different perspective. Dr. Homoli, let's talk about this concept of the sales approach. And, you know, why do you think that as a society, we have such negative connotations towards it? And why do we like, you know, have such a reflexive response to just the concept of sales and, you know, salesmen? Well, you know, I, I think, I think there's a couple of good reasons for it. N- number one, number one, the, the most popular profession worldwide, right? The most popular profession worldwide is teacher. But number two is salesperson. See, there is a tremendous amount of people who are in sales. They're either in sales or they were in sales. They're married to a salesperson or they used to be, or their friends are in sales. 
you know, sales is pretty common. I, I think of my my five best friends, three of whom are in sales or were in sales. Now, let's say, Erica, you've been in sales. Let's say you sold, let's say you're selling real estate. Let's just say that. And you're the patient. In order to, you know, be as good as you can be in, in your profession, you, you've taken continuing education courses on how to sell homes, a, a sales process. Okay. Now you got to, you're going to go to the dentist. You're going to go to the dentist. You sit in the chair and the dentist starts using sales techniques on you. Says, well, don't think of it as investment. Think of it, don't think of it as an expense. Think of it as investment. There's any reason why you would want to go ahead and do that today. And automatically, because you're familiar with sales techniques, what does that do to the credibility of the dentist talking to you, Erica? Yeah. You pick up on it straight away, don't you? It, absolutely. And even patients yeah. who aren't salespeople can, they, they unconsciously will, will, will get that, that, that nasty fragrance of sales pressure. There is no reason to apply sales pressure to patients. It's, it's a simple, you, you don't think of it as selling people into care. I, I like when, when I teach this, I talk about how to invite patients into care, how to invite them. And when they're ready for care, we'll be here for you. So it's not a let's get them in and get it done today kind of a thing. What it is, it's about building relationships. And then when patients become ready for care, they'll return to you. And you do that long enough. You do that for three or four or five years. And what happens is that all those people who have been kind of um, getting their house in order, all those patients you've seen that weren't ready for complete care, but you've presented dentistry, Erica, so well to them that even though they weren't ready for care, they'll never forget how well you offered it. And when they become ready, they come walking in. They'll say, Erica, I'm ready, and bingo. And what you've got is a happy patient who's ready. That's how I build. That's how I build practices right there. That's really interesting. And how even when you said like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a long process. It's not necessarily this one moment. It's built slowly, gradually over time. You're building that trust and likability and that connection with people. And I kind of want to take what you've just talked about and almost go into a little bit more specifics because a question that I had from one of my colleagues the other day, he's in second year, so early on in dental school. And he says, Erica, I just don't understand how, you know, once people go into private practice, how on earth they talk to patients about money. Because he's like, I feel like people just, you know, instantly shrivel up and they don't want to talk about, you know, money and they only want to, um, you know, spend as much as their insurance covers. He's like, how on earth do you talk to someone about the fees of dentistry? And I says, look, I think I know someone that might be able to give you a better answer to that. So what do you think, Dr. Uh, uh, yes. of that situation? <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I had that problem very early in my career because I was presenting dentistry that I couldn't afford. I remember, I, I don't. I, I, when I started practice, I was totally in debt. I didn't have parents that could bail me out. So when I when I and when I started dentistry, my my total my crown fee. You ready for this? My crown fee was two hundred ninety five dollars a unit. <laughs> I mean that that's almost the lab fee now, right? And and so and so and I'm treatment planning these two thousand to three thousand dollar treatment plans, and I'm in my head I'm going, oh boy, that's a lot of money. But, but what I realized, what I realized that 
is when after the treatment was done for a lot of these people, especially my implant patients, Erica, especially the implant patients who are suffering with their um, full dentures, especially the lower denture, I would place implants, do an overdenture, and that at that time that fee was probably in the eight to ten thousand dollar range. This is back in 1978, 1979. Okay. And, but when those people would come back, they had such gratitude. Oh, and they would tell me stories about, uh, you know, how much their life has changed and they can eat better. And, and, and see, it's my patience. It was my patience that taught me the value of what I was doing. And that gave me the courage to, to talk to patients about money. You see, the financial conversation, I'm not talking about making financial arrangements now. That That's the role of an office manager or a treatment coordinator. Financial arrangements, scheduling, insurance issues, that, that administrative side of it is not doctor-centric. But I believe that the higher the fee is, especially for fees, Erica, that are greater than $10,000, it's a huge advantage for the dentist to quote the fee. Here's why. Because the fee, the fee is part of the relationship. You, you see, uh, my new patient experience, it, it's built on a gradual emotional momentum, starting with the initial appointment and then the examination and the post-examination discussion and then the case conversation. And all the while, I'm inspiring people I'm, I'm connecting with them. I'm telling them stories. We're, we're, we're getting to know each other. So as we go through the case presentation, when I, when I finish my case presentation, Erica, I'm naturally going to say, do you have any questions? And they're almost always, they'll ask, well, doctor, how much will all this cost? You see, but all this while I've been on this escalating emotional momentum. I want to continue that momentum through this most critical part of the relationships. Patients need your support as they're evaluating what does the fee mean to them in terms of their own life. If I'm going to quote a $15,000 fee and that fee is makes the patient uncomfortable, I want to be in the room while they're feeling discomfort because you see, I, I can help with that. They said, well, doc, I had, gosh, I had no idea it would be that expensive. And I would say, well, Erica, that's exactly why we're talking about it right now. I want you to know that we're really good about helping patients fit the dentistry into their life. And Erica, if this isn't a good time for you, if this fee and the time and the treatment doesn't work for you, um, I'll wait with you. Let's maybe we do it next year. Maybe we do it. And, and oftentimes, Erica, when they would hear my empathy, when they would get the sense that I'm not trying to sell or push them, oftentimes they would say, no, 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 doc. No, don't get me wrong. I want the dentistry, but I didn't think it would be that expensive. And then I would say, well, why don't we do this? Let me let you talk with my patient advocate. That's my term for treatment coordinator. Let me, let me let you talk with my patient advocate, and, and she can go over some different ways that we can spread this treatment out. Maybe we do it a little bit at a time. Oh, you can do it like that, Doc? Oh, we can. Sure. You give us a sense of a budget that you need to work with, and we'll do our best to 
make it work for you. Would that be okay? You, you see, if I'm not in the room, that can't happen. Sure, you may have a treatment coordinator, but but and, and this is not an anti-staff comment. Okay. This I love dental team members, don't get me wrong. But too many of them, when they present care, it's like reading a menu in a restaurant. Okay, here's what the doctor says you need. Here's what the fees are. Here's how you're going to have to pay it. Here's what your insurance will pay. And it's very transactional. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying when those fees get above $10,000 and patients are a little shocked by the number, the doctor needs to be in the room to support that emotional moment with the confidence and and, and the insight and in how to fit the dentistry into patients' lives. That's why I quote high fees, right? I quote them. I don't let my team quote them. I quote them. If the fee is below 10000 my team can quote that. But once you get up to 10000 15000 that's a surprise for a lot of patients. BOQ specialists have worked closely with dental professionals for over 30 years and they understand the unique challenges that you, as a dental student or graduate, will face at the beginning of your career. I know they helped me early on as a dental student and they can help you too as they offer a private banking experience and tailor their products for dental professionals. I can say they have great customer service. I've lost my password that many times and they've always been able to help me. Nothing like the experiences I've had with competitors. So if it sounds like they can help you too, get in touch with them for a chat. For more information, visit boqspecialist.com.au slash students or check out the show notes for more details. TNC's fees and lending criteria apply. See boqspecialist.com.au for more details. Now that's so fascinating. I really like the way you've you know, interpreted that or like broken it down and actually leads quite interestingly into my next question to you where you talk about, you know, those higher fee dentistry where you're saying, you know, cases that are going above, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. And for most of our listeners, they're students and new grads. So they're very much, you know, getting that recoil of, oh wow, that's expensive dentistry. And I had another question from another colleague actually, where he presented, he says, it oftentimes feels like People talk about dentistry as though it's on a spectrum where patient-centered care is on one end and then money-making high-fee dentistry is on the other end. And he says, what do you think about it? And I was like, that's such an interesting thought. And I don't think it's necessarily on a spectrum because I think the way that you've presented it, Dr. Homily, is almost that well, patient-centered care and and complete dentistry are really go hand in hand, right? And it just so happens that complete dentistry tends to have those higher fees. Can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on complete dentistry and what that means to you? Because I believe you know you. I learned this term from you, and what higher fee dentistry entails. Just this concept. Well, you make a good point, um, and, and and I've heard the same comments from colleagues over the years. Understand that I have presented in front of hundreds of audiences and have addressed thousands of dentists for the last 20, 25 years. And occasionally I'll get a, a question from 
well, doctor, all this high fee stuff, isn't it, you know, aren't you worried that your colleagues would think you're in it just for making a lot of money and blah, 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 blah. Well, when, when I hear a question like that, I know the questioner really doesn't understand what my motives are. See, my motives have always been, how can I do the best thing for my patient? See, that's been my motive. And, and frankly, there's some patients that <laughs> they just need a lot of stuff, Erica. They got bad gums. They got bad teeth. Their occlusion is nasty. They look like hell. They, but they're good people. And they're, they're, they're in trouble. And there's something going on in their life now that makes good dental care important. Maybe they're getting remarried or maybe applying for a job. Or maybe they're going to go on a trip and all of a sudden there's an urgency and they find themselves kind of crippled with their dental care. So they need $20,000, $25,000 worth of dentistry. I am doing a patient a huge service by, by being diligent in identifying all of the conditions in their mouth, recommending care for all of the conditions so I can get them to, and, and you know the phrase for complete care dentistry, optimal function, comfort, aesthetics, phonetics, and airway. In order to do that for some people, it's $25,000. But what can you buy for $25,000? Well, you can get a pretty good motorcycle. You can get a used van, right? See, people spend $25,000. They'll spend $25,000 every six months when they go out to dinner every night or buying bottles of wine. And, and so, and I'm not against going out to dinner and I'm not against wine. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have a glass when we're done with this, Erica. But you, you, you need to look at it as if there's a gift involved. And the gift involved is, I always look at it, if, if providing complete care, Erica, was easy, every dentist would be doing it. The, the truth of the matter is that I've surveyed thousands of dentists for over two decades, fewer than, fewer than 30% of dentists, fewer than 30% of dentists routinely offer complete care. What that means is 70% don't. They offer what they think patients can pay for or what the insurance will pay for or what they think patients will accept. And so offering complete care requires diagnostic acumen. It requires verbal and emotional intelligence skills. It requires great communication skills. And some dentists may say, well, you know, I'm not a good communicator or I'm not into sales or I let my staff do that. That is a career limiting point of view. When, when you look at there's a, there's a certain amount of, of the, the, there's the clinical side of dentistry that you just got to grind out to tell you the truth. You go to dental school, you learn about plaster, you learn about class two, you, you learn about all this stuff and you just grind through that. You, you learn how to use your hands and all that. And once you've been in practice three, four, five years, you're, you're going to get over doing simple fillings. The thrill of fixing one tooth at a time is going to get really old. I guarantee it. It will feel like piecework. For the first couple of years, you're going to feel good about it. Hey, I'm a dentist and I'm doing this and I'm making a couple bucks and I'm going to be happy. But I tell you, when you hit three, year three, four or five in your career, you're going to begin to think, wow, is this all there is? I feel my neck hurts, my back hurts. And and in order for me to make a good buck, I'm going to have to see 60, 70 new patients a month and now I'm beginning to feel the stress and strain. Plus, as a young dentist, you, you guys are going to be, you guys are going to be stacking up domestic expenses. You're going to be getting married. You're going to be buying houses. You're going to be having babies. You're going to your 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 ex, <laughs> your expense your expense profile is going to go. Yeah. 
And so what are you going to do? Update the roof. That's right. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do? You're going to put your foot on the gas. Well, let's get more patients in. Let's get more patients in. That's an invitation to disaster. Okay. At some point, at some point, after you've got, you know, you're, after you know how to work with the assistant, you know your way around the mouth a little bit, your hands are working, you're getting over the thrill of fixing a tooth, then, then you really need to start thinking, okay, what continuing education do I need? And typically, it's going to be occlusion, perio, prosthetics, that kind of stuff, implants, that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you, clinical excellence, clinical excellence is not a guarantee for prosperity in the dental practice. And I would highly recommend that as dentists go through their continuing education clinical curriculum, that they add in behavioral and communication skills. That's what I do right there. As dentists build their clinical skills, I'm right there with them building their communication and their skills of influence. And that's the, that's the center of what I do, Erica, right there. That's fascinating. And like you said, clinical skills, there are so many continuing education courses where if you want to go learn how to place implants, you want to get better at restorative work, you want to do orthodontics, there are so many courses to learn to do that clinical side of things. But perhaps it's the other, the non-clinical side of, and beyond just communication, even when you're talking about connecting with patients, being likable, um, empathy, how do you learn to be better at that? How do you practice and become better at connecting with people. Quit quit hanging around with other dentists, number one, okay? Yeah. Because there's a huge inbreeding with the mentality of dentists. You, what year in school are you right now, Erica? I'm in my final year. Okay, in your final year. I guarantee you are a different person than you were when you started in freshman year. You're a different person. And, yeah, it's very different. and you're different now, largely due to your communication skills. You're, gonna, you're thinking very linear, you're thinking very mechanical, you're thinking cause and effect, and that's just the way it is, and that's the way we need to think as dentists. We, we need to be operationalized in terms of our cognitive skills. I guarantee you that the dentists that you're hanging around with, your other dental students, right, they're not gonna teach you. They're, they can't teach you. Your instructors can't teach you what it takes to be authentically empathetic because that isn't their world. That isn't their world. So I highly recommend that you get outside of dentistry initially and get involved with something like Toastmasters International. Toastmasters specializes in speaking, thinking, and leadership skills. And and you've probably got 2,000 Toastmasters clubs in Australia. I'll look it up when we're done here. And, and so the, the whole process of learning to be a better communicator, learning to be a better listener, understanding the value of empathy is huge. It's huge. And so when, when I had this eye disability, Erica, uh, I knew I mean, think of it. You, you, you go to a large dental meeting right now. You've been to large dental meetings. You go to large dental meetings and let's say it's a let's say it's a three day meeting where you've got general session speakers and a bunch of breakout sessions. Right. Ninety nine percent of those sessions are about teeth and there'll be maybe one or two sessions on communication. And, and the communication is all about disc profiles or something that that's OK, but it, it, it doesn't even begin to get close to what dentists need and team members need to really make a difference in their patients' lives. And as dental students, it's impossible to teach this in the dental school curriculum. 
You guys have got too much other stuff to learn. I mean, you're it, it's premature. Th- this podcast may be premature to tell you the truth. And hopefully you can archive it. And then three years from now, the dentist will open it up and listen to it again. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's for, for dental students to, um, to assimilate this is, is almost too soon. I, I will tell you one thing. Let me give you, if I could give you one piece of advice as a dental student, something that you can do now. Okay. Is, is change your nomenclature that, and I would assume that in Australia, you have the nomenclature called chief complaint for patients. Do you have that? Yeah. Yeah. Reason for attendance, chief complaint. Yeah. 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 And what's the patient's chief complaint? And you think about it. Does that make every new patient a complainer? Does it? Yeah. You you see, it's, it's in the nomenclature. It's in the nomenclature that takes us down the wrong track. So instead of discussing patients' chief complaints, talk about, instead of saying, what's the patient's chief complaint, learn to ask, what does the patient really value about our relationship? What's important for this patient here? Okay? In that way, it's, it's, it's more of an empowering frame of mind. And when you do that, when you do that, instead of saying, okay, um, Okay, Erica, you know, why are you here? What's your chief complaint? Instead, you'll be saying, you know, it's been a while since you've been to the dentist. Is, you know, what makes dentistry important for you now? And you become more authentically curious about people. And, and I would say discard the language of chief complaint. All your, all your fellow students talk about that too, don't they? They all talk about it, right? Stop listening to that. That's contaminating you. Think about not a complaint, but what's the chief value they're looking for? What is the chief benefit? What is the chief fit issues? Fit issues are life circumstances that'll enable people to accept care. What's the behavioral benefit they're looking for? Instead of what's your chief complaint, that is such an inadequate inquiry into patient's mindset. The more you learn about orthodontics, the more you see it applying to almost every case. It might not always be necessary, but it's almost always an option. So then you think, I want to do aligners for my patients. And your challenge is to learn how to do that to a high standard. But once you've learned that, many people find that the challenge then is how do you actually make that work within your practice? How do you make this efficient and therefore profitable enough for you to be able to provide that to your patients in private practice? There's two people I think about when I think about aligners and then practice management. That's Dr. Jeff Hall and Dr. Jesse Green. And now they've come together to create Clear Aligner Excellence, their new education platform that is aiming to solve both of these problems for you in your practice while also giving you huge discounts off the major aligner therapy companies. Over the next six years, aligner therapy is forecast to increase by 28%. This is a huge opportunity. Take it with both hands, clearex.com.au. really changes and like such a small change just a change in your vocabulary and your phrasing really shifts it entirely and what you're looking at and facing focusing on dr homily you mentioned how you feel like this may be a little bit premature but yeah we've got you know a lot of dental students but a lot of people earlier on in their career as well and i guess the beauty of our podcast is that once it's out there it's 
in the archives people can come back at any time but I also think it's applicable for people at different stages of their careers but just talking a little bit about specific things for people earlier on in their career and I know a lot of the things that you talk about is you know building connections with patients, using stories of, you know, past patient experiences. But as a new grad, you don't necessarily have that repertoire and you're so caught up on your, you know, focusing on your clinical skills, becoming competent in taking out a tooth or doing a filling that stays and doesn't debond. Like, what do you think that we should focus on early on in our career when we're still trying to gain that, you know, confidence and really just see enough patients? But work on becoming immediately likable, all right? It, 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 that, that may sound like an understatement, but, but I want you to think about this. In, in, the new patient, in, in, in the new patient process, okay, in the new patient process, I mean, doesn't it make perfect sense to be immediately likable? I mean, you meet the patient, you interview the patient, you talk to the patient a little bit. Doesn't it make perfect sense that that become a likable experience for the patient? Doesn't it make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. But you yeah. see, typically that doesn't happen in dental offices. Here's what happens in dental offices. The patient comes in, they don't meet the doctor. They get taken to the back and a dental assistant takes a mouthful of x-rays, right? Then the patient goes to the hygienist and the hygienist talks to them about the plaque and the periodontal condition and, and why they need uh, scaling and root plan instead of a simple prophy. And, and, and then perioprobing, how likable is perioprobing? How likable are, are, are full mouth radiographs? How likable are study models? You see, typically we start our new patient procedures with the most unlikable things that we do. It doesn't make, so yeah. it doesn't make any sense. So, so what do you do? What you do is you don't start your new patient experience with diagnostics. You start it with relationship. That is when that new patient comes in, it's greeted by the doctor, not the treatment coordinator, not the dental assistant, right? I'm talking about after they check in at the front desk, when they come back, have them come back to a consultation area, or if you don't have one, put them in the chair, put them in the dental chair, but don't put the napkin on. Don't make them a patient, just keep them as a person, okay? And then, and then talk to the patient about, okay, what, what brings you in today and, and what's important for your dental health. And don't be afraid. You know, you, you said something interesting. You don't have success stories of patients. But what you do have, you have stories about yourself. It's called disclosure. And Erica, uh, patients love knowing a little bit about who's treating them. Because, see, dentistry in many ways, in many ways when you think about it is, it's, it's almost the leadership competency, isn't it? And if you're going to be a leader in the patient's eyes, to lead them in the direction of their best interest, if you're going to do that, then they need to know who they're following. And so stories about why you became a dentist, stories about where you grew up, stories about your brothers and sisters, stories about what, how your parents influenced you. And you, you look at the patient's record and you maybe start with, where they live and what they do. And then you find a common ground. Oh, my brother lives there, or we did that too. Or, you know, we just got married and we did that. Patient, especially more mature patients, patients over 50, like knowing more about their healthcare providers other than the degrees on the wall. That's the degrees on the wall. 
you know, okay, but they can't identify with that, but they can identify if you tell stories about your little girl growing up. No, I love that. And I find myself even doing that now with like some of my patients because in dental school, we have so many, there's so much waiting around. <laughs> there's a lot of waiting around for a tutor to come, you know, check that oh, this has been done well or not. And when the patient's got rubber dam on or something and they can't really talk to you, I'm like, it's a bit awkward. And so sometimes what I'll do is just, I'll tell them a little story or I'll talk to my um, my assistant. And it's just, I feel like, oh, at least they get to know a little bit about us and where we're from, or you make that connection. And then once the rubber dam's off, they'll be like, oh, you said that you grew up here and you know, you did this or you've got a niece or a nephew. And it just, I find it also so much more enjoyable as well, because you're seeing them beyond just teeth. There are people, they've got stories. And I think that's also part of the like the rewarding part of what we do is just making those human connections with other people. Absolutely, yes. I love what you just said. You know, and, and let, let me be the first one to give you permission to keep doing that. <laughs> that is, that is yeah. a good thing. That is a good thing. And what happens, Erica, is that as dentists get into private practice, you're going to be a lot busier than you are in dental school. In dental school, you're sitting on your hands waiting for an instructor to come to check out your, your prep. I get it. That doesn't happen in private practice. And so in private practice, it's one task after another, after another, after another, and after another. And you, you'll suffer from what I call hurry sickness. Hurry sickness is when you, you just, you, you just, you, you pursue one task after another and then you're just going and going and going. And oftentimes dentists lose touch. See, you lose your touch. The touch meaning that personal connection, the ability to smile, the ability to listen well, the ability to tell a well-told story. You, you, it isn't that you, you, don't, you lose it. It's just that you don't feel you have time for it. Once, once you start thinking that you don't have time to connect with patients, I guarantee you that is a career-limiting habit right there. When you when you get the pressure, like, oh, I don't have time to make connections with patients. I'm going to have my treatment coordinator talk to these patients. No, no. I'm not against treatment coordinators talking to patients, but I'm talking about that initial meeting with the patient. You've got to have time for that. You need to make time because it is, your practice will evolve, Erica, in the direction of its new patient experience. If you're getting patients in and out, and you're not connecting with people, those are the type of people who will be referred to you. And you'll constantly have to market your practice because those types of patients are low loyalty patients. However, if you're building a reputation about offering complete care and connecting well with patients, your growth curve will be slower, but it'll be much more fulfilling. And the profitability aspect of it, especially as you hit five years in it and 10 years in it, 10 years into a complete care practice, you'll have a premium practice. You'll have a premium practice to where the word of mouth will be terrific. Whether you're a new grad or an experienced clinician, there comes a point where our passion wanes and we lack direction and motivation for our profession. At some point, we all need a little bit of inspiration, something that helps take us to the next level. 
presenting the Dental Summit 2023. Two whole days of incredible lectures from Australia's greatest CPD providers held at the Shangri-La Hotel in Sydney, followed by a cocktail night to remember so you can make those connections and network with like-minded dentists. So, in 2023, invest in yourself. Visit the webpage www.tds23.com to purchase tickets for September 1st and 2nd. And you can use our discount code DHS10 to get 10% off your ticket purchase. that you've said Dr. Homily are so fascinating I really really value it I do want to ask you a little bit more about the books that you have written and okay. that you've written quite a yeah because it's almost it's quite exciting for me because oh, I've spent this time reading your book and now I get to talk to the author of the book um but Ta-da, here I am almost from, yeah here you are I want to hear a little bit about they often say that in order to, tr- to truly understand a concept you need to be able to teach it or that teaching is the true test that you truly understand something because you're able to explain it to someone who doesn't know or understand it you're able to answer any questions that they have you know dispel any doubts that they may um you know have as well and to write that in a book that is you know cohesive and well-structured and you know easily digestible I feel like you really have to have a good grasp of the concept and you've written now what five books is it five books that's right that's right five books tell me how does the writing process come about did you just have a concept that you were passionate about and wanted to share with the world or did you develop these concepts as you were writing like how does that technical side happen well you know it all started really in high school Uh, in high school I was an auto shop major. Understand, my dad was a carpenter. All my aunts and uncles were laborers or mechanics or plumbers or something. So I grew up, so I naturally saw myself, well, I'm going to do that too. So I liked uh, fast cars, so I majored in in auto mechanics in high school. But I also liked storytelling. And a, a, lot, a lot of people would tell me they'd really like to hear my stories because I would tell jokes and things like that. So I was... I was an English minor in high school. And then when I went to undergrad, I was a biology major with a double major in English composition, expository writing. So I I had a bit of technical background as far as, you know, how to put a sentence together. Now, after I left practice, after the doctor told me I had, I needed plan B, right? I thought, Okay, if I'm going to build a career as a thought leader, what do all thought leaders have? They have a book. And uh, as a matter of fact, I have my first book uh, right here. This, whoops, I don't know if it shows up. There we go. It's called Dentist. Uh, Dentist and Endangered 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 Species. And this was written, Mm -hmm. written in 1994, 1995. Let me put it back on the rack here. And, uh, Back then is when we had, um, that's when insurance companies started creating managed care contracts and HMOs and all of that. And dentists were running for the hills and worrying about Delta Dental and all the write-offs that they would have to put up with. And the book is about, um, if if you want to get out of managed care, if you want to get out of the limitations of dental insurance, the only way out is up. Up meaning that you're able to treat complex, complete care patients because 
complex complete care patients have significant lifestyle hindering conditions. They have significant disability that is it really gets in their way and they're they're anxious and willing to pay for a dental treatment that will help them realize the behavioral benefits they'll want. And in see insurance and third party payers, they they their reimbursement levels stop at what, a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks, whatever it is. And when you're doing complete care dentistry, there's a lot of overhead involved in it. There's a lot of investment that's required to uh, for dentists to make. And so uh, suffering write-offs due to your insurance contracts never made any sense to me at all. I would rather spend the money on marketing and bring in patients where when they say, well, I can only do what my insurance will pay for, I would say, I'd love to say yes to that. However, your care is far beyond what your insurance will pay. I'd be glad to help you, but if you're not ready, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here when you're ready. I can help you. Your insurance company won't. Now, there was a lot of patients that said, well, I just, sorry, I can't do that, and away they go. Well, you know what? That's just, you you see, I kind of put a a stake in the ground. I put a stake in the ground, and I said, you know what? I I am not going to let third-party payers get in the way of my relationship with people. If they need a mouthful of dentistry, I'm going to tell them they need a mouthful of dentistry. And if they say, well, my insurance won't pay for it, I said, well, the insurance isn't my patient. You are. And did I lose patients on that? Yes, I did. But you see, the ones that I did treat were incredible referral sources. So it gets to the point where if, if I treat you, Erica, and I treat you outside the limitations of dental insurance, and you tell your friends about your great experience, and they say, well, did they take your insurance? And you say, no, they don't take insurance. And so they walk into the office knowing that we don't take insurance, so I don't have to play that game. And so that's that's a tough situation, and, and especially for young dentists. Here, here's my recommendation. Play the insurance game when you – and I don't know anything about insurance in Australia. I really don't. I'm going to learn before I come there. But I would imagine it's, <laughs> it's, it's not much different than what we have here. You know, you, you've got insurance companies that will put you on a preferred provider list. If you agree to be on that list, you also agree to a set fee schedule. That fee schedule typically is, you know, 30% less than you normally charge. So there is write-offs. Write-offs are just a form, another form of overhead. And if, if that's the situation, if that's the situation, probably as a young dentist, maybe going right out of, right into practice, it's probably a game that you're going to have to play, okay? Because there's just too much of it out there. And for you to, um, you know, beat your chest and say you're above it all, that isn't going to work, to tell you the truth. Now, once you get a couple miles on you, you get some gray hair, right? And you start building a reputation about having um, the ability to do complete care dentistry and giving people outstanding outcomes. Word travels fast, okay? Especially now with Instagram. See, I, the bulk of my practice was done before the internet, okay? We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have online reviews. You do now. Gosh almighty, that is just a great way. That is like gasoline on a fire. If you're a complete care dentist and you're knocking it out of the park, now you've got the internet to leverage all that. When you get to that point, when you get to that point, then you can start cherry picking which insurances you're not going to take anymore. And then ultimately you'll be free of it. 
But but the big mistake would be going into private practice as a young dentist saying, well, I'm going to kick all the insurance companies out. If you do that, you're going to end up with skinny kids. You know, you're, you're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, yeah. That, that isn't going to fly. Okay. So, so you play the game to begin with, but then your goal is to get out of it. It very much depends on what stage of your career that you're at. And I think earlier on, it's like you said, playing in the, yeah. Interestingly enough, you brought up um, the the idea of just how the internet has kind of changed things a little bit. So Homily, do you think that, the since you were you know, since you graduated and then over the years with the evolution of the internet and you know, things like Instagram and Facebook now and patients being able to just Google you and you know, see reviews, do you think that's changed things or do you think what you teach and you advocate for still withstands the test of time? Oh, there's no question what I teach is stood the test of time because I'm teaching what I taught. I'm teaching what I what I lived 30 or 40 years ago. You see, which technology has changed. Community internet, plus look at the technology in dentistry. I mean, geez, Louise, now you can scan and make a crown in an hour and a half. Patients don't even need to get out of the chair. You're done with it. In implants work, you've got guided surgery, you've got 3D imaging, you've got all this stuff. All that's changed. Here's what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed is the nature of the patient. The patients want to be well cared for. That has not changed. And if you take, you take some of this old school stuff that I'm talking about, but now combine it with high technology, like, like a, a, a artificial intelligence as far as diagnosis and 3D imaging and guided surgery. Now, if you, if you take that, those enhanced technologies, now young dentists can become very competent and safe beginners with implant dentistry. You know, I practiced implant dentistry for 20 years. I implanted and restored about 4,500 patients with dental implants, all before CAT scan technology, all before guided surgery. Now, what if I had guided surgery? What if I had guided surgery? I guarantee you it would have been, it would have been gangbusters if I had that technology. So now, to tell you the truth, I think that a young dentist like yourself going through dental school, um, working with sophisticated diagnostics, 3D scanning, uh, CT tomography, guided uh, surgeries, um, uh, the, uh, the bonding materials and the porcelain materials are so far superior now. I believe that it's possible for a young dentist to, I know this for a fact, that a young dentist will know more about implant reconstructive dentistry after three years than I knew after 20 because of the internet, right? I'm a golfer. I can, I can open up YouTube and I can watch the best golf instructors of the world giving lessons on how to hit the ball straight and how to hit out of the sand. I don't need to get on an airplane or go anywhere. I can just click into YouTube and away I go and it's free and it's great and I love it right? It's the same thing now with you. If you want to learn how to do implants, you can dial it up on the damn internet, right? And so your ability to learn, your ability to, to, to put your arms around global information around stuff that you're going to be doing every day, it just accelerates you guys. And I tell you what, if, if, if I could turn back time and I would go into a dental practice, I would, I, I tell you, I'd be dangerous. <laughs> I tell you what, <laughs> I would, I would act, and, and that's the joy 
uh, Erica, that I yeah. have so much now. I, I, I was just saying, I was talking to this young woman, Dennis, her, her, her husband's an attorney and they're, they're building a big group practice. They're buying practices. They're borrowing all sorts of money. And, you know, they're young and they're smart and they're, they're, they're totally savvy and they're cool. And, but, but what they don't have is the wisdom. What they don't have is the touch. They've got the guts, but they don't have the touch. And it's that touch that has not changed. Patients want to be well cared for, and 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 you, and you don't you don't feel patient. Patients don't feel well cared for because you get a three D scanner. Okay, that is that isn't the trick. Patients don't feel well cared for if you beat them over the head with patient education. Right? They'll feel lectured to. Patients feel well cared for when they feel understood. That has never changed. That has not changed. And there's no software out there that will do that for you. You can't buy your way into relationships with patients. Yeah. What I'm hearing, Dr. Homily, is that it's the skills, it's the connections. Those don't change regardless of how much time has gone by. But it's the technology, the resources that we have that almost fast track our ability to upskill and our ability to learn more and do things faster. Even just, you know, our conversation today, you're on the other side of the world. I'm over here. And yet, you know, we're completely different time zones. And yet we're able to have a conversation. Look at at us go. Look at us go. And so you're seeing, so, so you're seeing you're in dental school and I don't know what your career path looks like but if it was anything like mine you get out of school you find a practice and you enroll in something that will teach you much more about occlusion than you know right now that's a great place to start start with occlusion Mm -hmm. and then take a couple courses on implants build a relationship with a surgical specialist let the surgical specialist Mm -hmm. place your first implants for you maybe your first two or three hundred okay because mm-hmm. getting your hands around surgery requires a different dexterity than it does cutting teeth, okay? And so uh, to be a real safe beginner with implant dentistry, work with a surgical specialist and, and, and you do the prosthetics. That way you can learn your way around the mouth a little bit. And, and I would say, Erica, if you put your foot on the gas, I mean, I'm listening to you speak, you're articulate, you're bright, you're graduating dental school. I, I would be, if I were you, I, I would set a goal that in three to five <laughs> in three to five years you could have a powerhouse practice that took me twenty years to build. Okay. My goodness, Dr. Homily, that's a big thing, a big statement to make. <laughs> it's a true statement. You, you, you so remember much. three to five years from now, you listen to this podcast. I'm the first mm-hmm. one to tell you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh <laughs> uh, well, for all our listeners listening as well, I'm going to share that statement. I'm sure we've got a lot of bright people listening as well, and I think yeah, what Dr. Homily has said is also true to everyone else, right? It's very much what you were saying, Dr. Homily, earlier about being leaders and being inspired, and you know, being influenced by the people that you surround yourself with. And I hope that also gives everyone that little push to you know, go out, do big things, learn to connect with people, and the world is our oyster, really. It is. Dr. Homily, thank you. Yeah. I feel like this, this this has been such an enjoyable conversation and I do want to wrap it up a little bit because I know we've taken time out of your day, but I want to end with just the question that we ask all our guests okay. that we bring onto the show. And it's one that, you know, we have 
we're very fortunate that we have quite a large you know listenership from you know people dental students and people earlier on in their career even people that are you know 10 20 years out in their career actually ah. that you know all throughout Australia that, that listen um, but if you could share one piece of advice in particular for people earlier on in their careers I know you've shared quite a few so far but just one takeaway that as a young dentist perhaps you would have liked to hear yourself what would that one piece of advice be? There's there's so many ways I could go after this. You know, there, there, there are so many ways. But if I, if I had to pick one thing, it would be, um, it, it would be, I would go back to that comment that I made earlier. I said, when, when, when you get to the point where you feel you don't have time to talk with patients, okay, that, that, that's, that's a red flag right there. Okay. And you won't know that it's happening. Now that I've told you it's going to happen, you're now you'll be able to see it coming. Okay. If you don't see it coming, all of a sudden you're in it and you can't get out of it. Well, you can, but it's tough. So the piece of advice I would use, Erica, is okay, build your practice, work, work your tail off, stay busy, go for it. However, when your practice grows to the point to where you're feeling, wow, I have got a lot of tasks around me and my head's ready to blow up and I got a couple of hygienists and I got this going. And, and now you start over delegating your relationships to team members because you don't have time to talk to people. There's the red flag right there. And at that point, you need to rethink what you're doing. And get back to get back to connecting with people. And the way you do that is just you see them first thing in the morning or see them first thing in the afternoon without anything going on in the other column. Give yourself time to talk to people. Never lose that. Don't lose your touch. <laughs> Don't lose the touch. That's Thank right. Thank you, Dr. Homily. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us from all the way from the States. All right. Outstanding. Thanks, Erica. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists. Thank you.